Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series with myself, Lisa Farley, coordinator of the talk series here at the Abbey. Spoiler alert, Ashling Mooney is leaving the Abbey. After 12 years here and 24 years in the industry, Ashling has decided to find a new challenge between the elements of air and earth and fire and rain and cross the water to a far-flung location whose inhabitants are very lucky to have her. If you want to know where that might be, listen to this podcast. If you want to know about the intricacies of life in theatre, listen to this podcast. If you want to know about stopwatch scene changes, subtle moments of stage magic that can capture your heart for 40 nights in a row, listen to this podcast. Ashing talks about her beginnings as a freelancer, friendships that have lasted through thick and thin, halcyon days of a childhood in Hoth, and a pair of proud parents that would bring a lump to your throat. I've been trying to find the right words that would fit the shape of this farewell broadcast to Ashling. And of course, the thing is, you saw this coming, didn't you? Ashling has got it right from the start. Ashling has found all the right words and has used them in all the right ways to say exactly what she means to say to great effect. This recording is a fitting testimony to tradition, to creative art, and to the ghost of memories that exist here at the Abbey Theatre. Enjoy this podcast. Welcome to the Abbey Talks podcast series, Ashling Mooney. Thank you. Ashling, you are one week away from your final week as technical director at the Abbey Theatre. Before we dismantle that, will you tell me about your first day of work here? What was the job title and what was that production? The first time I worked in the Abbey, I was working for Rough Magic. And I had done Improbable Frequency in Belvedere, in the O'Reilly Theatre. Um, I was handing over to Stephen Dempsey, who was working here as stage manager at the time. So I came down to go through the routine, mainly what happens underneath the stage. So passing props up to actors, giving them pints of Guinness mid-show for use on stage (laughs) and um, getting to know the bowels of the Abbey Theatre, the understage, because you had to come up a set of threads underneath the stage uh, to get to a trap door, which was underneath the bar of the Improbable Frequency set. And uh, it was thrilling to come in here with Rough Magic, trying to transfer a show to what was like the big transfer to the main theatre, to the National Theatre. So then what was your impression when you first came in as a DSM then, as an Abbey Theatre employee? You knew the run of the stage at least, a glimpse of it. Yeah, I had, I mean, literally it was a handover. So I had a couple of days working with Stephen Dempsey um, and he showed me the ropes and he was amazing and he brought me around and almost held me by the hand. Um, I had been working in the freelance world for about 10 to 12 years before I came in here. Um, when I say working, the reason it's 10 to 12 years, I'd say it was 10 years of being paid and two years of not being paid on shares, as it used to be um, back in the day. And I had worked for big companies and small companies, so everything from bespoke theatre company to um, uh, Landmark to Rough Magic Landmark, were only starting at the time. I had done all the work with Theatre Works, which then became Ouroboros. I had been working in the crypt quite a lot uh, with Eva Aldonach, and I'd kind of felt my way around different scales of theatre and different ways of working. But still, the thrill of coming into the National Theatre was what I really enjoyed about that production of Improbable Frequency. Then when I came in to work here as a DSM, I had been a stage director outside of the Abbey, um, or what what is a senior stage manager, um, for quite a while. So coming in just to call the shows was incredible. It was amazing to think that you you know, marking your book up properly, having your lighting and sound cues in before you hit the the stage, Um, working so closely with the actors and the directors, I did. Uh, So the first show was Months in the Country with Jason Byrne. And I had worked with Jason before, knew him well, and we had worked very well together. Um, 
there was Declan Conlon and Dervla Crotty were in it. Dervla had to paint a painting live on stage. So there was always that thing in the rehearsal room of where are we in the painting? Where is it? And she and she painted through the entire rehearsal process. Um, she was thrilling to watch. And, you know, Declan, you fall in love with Declan every time he's on stage. You know, amazing in the rehearsal room. So giving and generous. And it was like, and as a DSM, to be able to concentrate on that and not have to run out and make phone calls and not have to... Uh, be on to the production manager every 10 minutes because you had a stage manager who was outside the room doing that work. Would um, you mind explaining, say, to civilians then who may not know that breakdown between what an ASM is, a DSM or a CSM? Okay. So when I came in, they had developed the system in the Abbey that they were taking on the British system of a stage manager, a DSM and an ASM for each show. So um, the SM would be in charge of all of the activity outside of the rehearsal room, all of the communication between departments, uh, the running of the show when it got to the stage where the DSM was calling the show. So they were giving all the cues uh, to the actors in terms of cue lights, to the sound, to the lighting, to um, any effects that might happen on stage, um, to stage text. It could be curtain pulling, which it was in Once in the Country. Um, and as you um, are rehearsing that, you're working all them into your book. And then the ASM is in charge of all of the props on stage and the checklist with the SM before the show goes up every night. So the SM is um, leading it out, but the, the ASM has placed everything on stage, any dressing that needs to be there, any, st- any props that need to be used. And running one side of the Uh, of the stage so the stage manager will run one side and know that the actors are standing by and ready to go on or your stage techs are standing by and ready to go on and the ASM is running the other wing so it's a huge responsibility and it's the kind of junior role but it's the role that when it doesn't happen or when it goes wrong is really noticeable if there's a prop not on stage if there's a thing that goes wrong that's always the bit that um, is uh, both upsetting for the actor but visible to the audience Okay, so you're coming in. In what year did you come in? It's 2006 when I came in, so I'm here 12 years on the 6th of April. So was there any kind of, or did you have an attitude or a viewpoint about coming from the independent theatre sector to the big house that is the Abbey Theatre? Did it meet your expectation also? Um, I had come to see lots of work in the Abbey Theatre. So I came to see Freedom of the City, Philadelphia Here I Come, uh, the first show I ever saw in the Abbey was Rosencrantz and Guildenstern are dead and I was blown away by the scale of it, by the big stage, um, by the cast in that. Was that an um, Abbey Theatre production or was that um, a visiting theatre company? Or? Uh, I think it was an Abbey Theatre production. Um, there was people like uh, Noel Brown was in it, uh, Clive Geraghty, so I think it would have been an Abbey production. Uh, Noel is actually in the Unmanageable Sisters now, so it's kind of come full circle for me. Yeah, like the first show I saw in the Abbey and the last show I've worked on. Um, but the sitting in the old stalls, the stalls that went backwards and down, um, looking up at the stage and seeing how massive it was compared to every other stage that I was, I had been witness to. I'd seen pantomimes, but I hadn't seen plays. We didn't come from that background of, you know, going to see work. We went to see the panto once a year, but actually seeing plays, I got involved in a community drama group and started to go and see plays. So to come in and feel like I had sort of landed in the National Theatre, and it was the first time that my family congratulated me on a job, like that I'd got a real job. Because I had worked in lots of things before that and had done lots of theatre. But this was the first time they recognised it as a, maybe a career move. And I got like, good luck in your new job cards, which you never get when you're working gig work, because there's a new job every couple of weeks. Um, and I remember being really excited coming in and 
the intricacy of the Abbey is that you spend six months finding your way around and that's not just the physical building that's who to go to to get things done or who to talk to to um, to shortcut the multiple conversations that you have to have to get things done so it, it takes six months to be able to feel like you're more grounded here so for the first six months you're still how do I do it what do I do and um, but really supportive group um uh, Audrey Hessian was here at the time. Tara Furlong came in with me around that time. Um, and uh, John Stapleton, of course, was there, Stephen Dempsey. And it was a lovely group to work with. And we, you know, we're finding our feet with the new way that they were doing stage management. Um, it was post-redundancies in 2004. So there was kind of a rebuild starting to happen. And Fiat had just come in after. Um, so I, I came in the following year after Fiat came in. Um, so the building was still finding its feet with a new regime or new um, new way of working. So can I ask you about, I suppose, going through the ranks? Who were there mentors and were there role models here? Um, there were people who I looked up to and I was in awe of. Um, before I came in here, I was terrified of Stephen Malloy, which everybody will find hilarious because Stephen is the nicest, mildest mannered lovely man in the world but as an ASM he was a god you if you needed anything you went to Stephen and if he could take your call you were in um and I really was mad about him but if he didn't take my call or was annoyed at me because something came back later it didn't suit him to do something and he kind of you know looked at you sideways you were terrified I was so I remember telling him years later that how terrified I was and he just laughed because I'm now you know his line manager and 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 the two of us giggle about it um you know John Stapleton in terms of how the Abbey works what how the Abbey what you need to do in the Abbey to, to make it work because it can be very different to how you work on the outside and you can't take on every job. There's, there's, it's someone else's job to do that. Um, where outside of here, you'd be sitting in the dock, cutting up bits of paper, making your own props. There's a props department. Um, or you'd sew the hem of a dress or you'd sew the name into a dress or you'd repair a button. There's people to do that, which is fantastic. And that was very different to what I had worked with before. As you know, because you worked with me. <laughs> I know. That was on Teus Verdes. Was Teus that Verdes, the first one? Yeah. But then I'm thinking, we, did we work together on um, The Drunkard? Yes, we did The Drunkard we as well. Did. Yeah. And, was, and that was Nick Dunning's ever-decreasing light blue T-shirt. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> it was a shrinking T-shirt. And it was a very particular colour as well, which then when we bought a new T-shirt, we had to dye to make that colour. I suppose I'm very aware of you're coming in through stage management, you go through and uh, you're technical director. So you've gone up through the ranks. How do you maintain friendships when there is such camaraderie here in the theatre and you have those decompression pints afterwards? How do you maintain the friendships whilst, whilst in a position of authority? Um, I think honesty is really important with friends. And I think that uh, the people who I was friends with before I came into the Abbey, like Emer Murphy or Anne Kyle or Paula Tierney, uh, while they've worked here, I've still been their friends, but they're, they're, a little bit of distance might be created out of, you know, you know something they don't know or um, you can't talk about it yet because it hasn't been announced. Um, that can form, you know, some distance. But you try and talk about things outside of theatre, stay, you know, friends and close. And I remember going up to Anne for one of our birthdays one year and we just like hung out in her house and, you know, went for a nice seafood dinner Um you know, those things are still important for for Emer. We went off to an island for a birthday. Um, you know, if you can 
see your life outside of here is really important as well and take that downtime to be friends not just colleagues um, is how you maintain those friendships um, but being there for each other through thick and thin in theatre I mean there's so many things that can go wrong and so many uh, such goodwill to make the show happen that you develop these really close relationships because you're um, heading in the same direction and have the same deadline, um, which isn't always true with other friends, but friends outside of here. You know, I can be up to 90 about a show and everybody in here will understand, but my mates outside are going, but it's so-and-so's birthday, why can't you come? And, you know, and you're like, it's, you know, the, the truck hasn't arrived or the boat broke down or the, and that's why I can't go. You know, to weddings even, uh, friends' weddings that I've had to turn down being bridesmaid at because, you know, I'm sorry, but I'm, I'm calling a show that night or I've got a gig on. Um, that's always been difficult outside of here and I suppose it's a little bit easier now that um, I'm in a different job. Um, I can, you know, make those friendships again and uh, I have more of my evenings free and more time to be a friend. So when you're, when you're working on a show uh, and through all your roles, you're, you're watching it from different angles all the time. You're working through, obviously, the get-in and the tech and then the overall view of it. Do you ever get to sit back and enjoy the show or are you always watching? Um, I find it very difficult to relax even on a show outside the Abbey. If I go to something in the Borgosh or I go to something in London I'll be trying to go how does that work or do I like that? Did, did they make a good call there a good decision or um, or notice things that went wrong? Um, I can't sit in an auditorium without looking at the detail and going that's not right why is it not right why didn't somebody fix that so when I I come to all the dress rehearsals for shows here and when I sit in the auditorium with the dress I'm taking notes all the time but as a production manager my goal was always to have more notes than the designers that I was seeing things that were important to the building as well as important to the show that would make it better and ask those questions of the designer does this bother you do you mind that you can see this you know a hanging point or should we change that out and often designers will go no I like it keep it but I like to be able to ask the question I like to be taking the notes and making sure that I have more notes than them so if they, if they say you know there's a curtain falling down there go yeah I have it as a note I've already sent it to so and so to fix it um, so that they know that you're on it and that you're um, aware of these things and that you care that you care enough to want to fix it to make sure that it's right for the next time um, and all through the dress and the previews, that would have been my goal as a production manager to always sit down with the designer and go, yeah, I've got that or I've already sent that to somebody or I have somebody coming in to do a scenic job on that tomorrow so that they know that you're, um, you're seeing the problems before they happen. And what kind of theatre reaches you? What do you want to see? Uh, I, like what, I like making theatre. I like creating uh, New work particularly, but the classics. Uh, I've always loved the classics. My favourite show ever in the Abbey was um, The Burial at Thebes, uh, which was on in the Peacock. And it was uh, beautifully done. Um, again, Declan Conlon <laughs> stands out. Jane Brennan, uh, Gemma Reeves. Um, the chorus of gentlemen um, that sat at the desk and their voices were all so distinct and so different. And it just... It just made me stop when when Jane does this uh, silent cry on stage in that play, and the, and the thing about theatre is you can't recreate it. You like if if you haven't seen it, you haven't seen it. But it it made my heart stop. I just was in awe of this moment, this theatrical moment that happened on stage, and and new work, 
really excites me. It really excites me to be doing a world premiere, an Irish premiere, a, a writer who we hadn't seen on stage before. When Elaine Murphy came in here, for instance, I was really thrilled for her. The same is true of when I saw Be For Baby downstairs. Um, that whole season of work that we did by uh, female writers was really exciting. Uh, Nancy Harris, um, all of that work that happened, the four by fours that happened in that year. For me, it's what gives me joy is to see those things happen on stage. But it's, you know, it's the most expensive part of theatre to take something from from nothing and create it. Uh, but it is the bit that's most exciting um, from my point of view. And I have no creative juices. Just because you want to have a silver BMW on stage, I don't know why you want it. I don't know what that, why that's relevant to the show. But if you want it, I can make it happen. That's my part, is the practical part. The, you know, what do we need to do to get that silver BMW there? Because it is, cause it's relevant to the show now, because you've, you want it. it. You've said you need it. you said it's part of this play and you've explained to me what it's giving the play and why the play needs this. When I see that, that's what I find most uh, thrilling about it. I'm very practical, but I did get to a stage in the Abbey where I went, yeah, I've done it, I've done it. Yeah, snow, yeah, wind, yeah, rain, yeah, lightning, yeah. Um, you know, the, the stage lifts up, the stage lifts down, flying a person, uh, high wire act, um, you know. So it was, for me at the moment, it's just a case of, you know, reinvigorating that and doing it in a different way from now on. You mentioned that kind of practical aspect you have to your character. Will you take me back to the start and talk to me about your upbringing and what kind of household it was? <laughs> Um, well, I grew up in Hoth and uh, didn't actually realise how fantastic it was until I left. And I left when I was 18 to go and au pair in Germany. I was, um, my dad was a carpenter by trade. My mother was a housekeeper in a hotel and my dad was the bar manager in the same hotel, which was the Deer Park Hotel in Hoth. Um, they were just really open to whatever you wanted to be, be it. I was pretty good in school. Um if I compare myself with uh, with my brother and sister who were kind of like, we just want to get out of school, we hate it, we hate it. And they supported all of us in whatever we wanted to do. Um, Lavinia wanted to leave to be a hairdresser, Andrew wanted to leave to be a mechanic and they just supported us with whatever we wanted to do. Um, where, do I, you, where do you rank in the family? I'm, I'm the eldest. Um, and I think because dad was a carpenter, I was practical. Um... And mum worked from eight o'clock in the morning till four. So uh, we had to get ourselves up, get ourselves dressed, get ourselves, you know, fed. Uh, then we had to go up to dad till we checked and to get our hair done because he used to tie our hair up. The same style for like 10 years. And we'd walk to school, which was at the end of the road. And that was when we were um, small children. I mean, now when you think of six-year-olds taking themselves off, I, I would have been six, Lavinia would have been five and we would have walked ourselves to the end of the road to go to school. Um, you wouldn't see six-year-olds doing that now. Um, but, you know, Dad had ticked us off. He'd kind of like, yes, you've got your shirt on and you've got your top on, you've got your, your school uniform on, you've got your socks are in the right place before he let us uh, leave the house. Um, and are you making things? Are you are you running around fields? Are you active in, you know, imaginations? Or? Yeah, I mean, there was a wood next to us and a golf course, um, really open space around us, and you would just leave the house at, you know, 
four o'clock in the evening. My mum would come home. She'd kind of check we were okay. Everybody was still alive. And uh, then we'd take ourselves off to the woods for hours and hours and hours. Still, it got dark. And we loved a, a storm of any sort because there'd be an upturned tree. And in an upturned tree, you could have a um, a little you know, fort and in the roots of it. And we'd bring sofas and cushions and um, radios. And uh, we'd live in these, in the woods, day in, day out. Um, And then I started getting really into films and reproducing those films in the back garden and charging people in to see it, which was actually my start in plays. So you'd hang the washing line with the two sheets on it and you'd open the sheets and behind it was Annie or, you know, I played Daddy Warbucks in one of them and... um, I mean, I'd no grow for acting, and but I loved the idea of putting something on, creating something. And we charged people in. I think we charged them like 10p in and we'd buy, you know, 10p bags of sweets and they'd get five. So they got a play and five sweets for 10p. That's how old I am. Um, <laughs> <laughs> no, I do remember the currency. <laughs> but the uh, the joy of it was like, you know, Orgy Ronan up the road would be Annie and, you know, somebody down the road would play something else. It was a way of bringing the neighbourhood together as well because we were all, all of those houses were built at the same time. So all of the kids were around the same age and we all minded each other. Like the parents were mostly working. Um, we weren't latchkey kids because there was always somebody there. There was always somebody keeping an eye out for us. And it was very, very close. Um, but it was... Uh, you're in someone's back garden a lot of the time or in the woods and uh, the adventures in the woods were just, you know, day in, day out. It was like coming home, mucked up to the eyeballs and really loving it. Like, um, but, you know, you'd be collecting golf balls at the same time and selling them back to the golfers and making a few bob. And um, then I went to school down in Sutton, in Santa Sabina in Sutton and we would get our bus fare, but we'd walk. So myself and my sister would walk to Sutton at 11 and 12 years old, I suppose. Um, to save our bus fare, to have a few bob for the end of the week. Um, canny with money, I guess we were. Um, yeah, I was going to say, there's quite an entrepreneurial streak there. It's all commerce. And I do sound ancient when I say all this, but that was like, it's so different to life now for children. We were outdoors for the whole summer. You were kind of, and because both my parents worked, mum was gone from eight to four, dad was normally gone from three to 12 or one o'clock in the morning. Um, you were out a lot and you were, you know, your community minded you. You know, you were looked after by the community. We had a really good next door neighbour who, you know, was probably put in charge of us and would kind of keep an, an eye out for us. But it wasn't official. And we came in for a dinner when mum got home or, or you know, we got our lunch before dad went to work. Um, so we were fed. We weren't urchins or anything. Um, but it was creative. It was, you know, you lived in your imagination. You didn't, you didn't have an awful lot. I mean, we did, we did get nice things, but I, I always describe it as um, the, we had the anti-Christmas um, because my father made doll's houses for other people because he was a carpenter and we would play with them up until Christmas Eve and then they'd disappear. Um, or we would uh, collect money in a jar and uh, all year and then on Christmas Eve it would go to all the poor children and it was like what paid for our presents really and mum would collect the um, the vouchers from Kellogg's and we'd get like a bag of Smurf things like Smurf records and Smurfs and Smurf clothes and Smurf ca- calendars and annuals and whatever Smurf thing came with the with the Rice Krispies um, a bit like Unmanageable Sisters and the Green Shield Stamps um, it wasn't it wasn't a poor life we had a telephone before a lot of people we had, uh, you know, we had we had a really kind of nice ex- like home, but it was um, we we didn't have you know the luxuries of you know computers very early on. But we you didn't were, notice a lack. 
Oh, not at all. No, we were, uh, you know, mum was a seamstress, so we always had really, really nice clothes. She loved the latest fashions. Myself and Lavinia always had the same clothes in different colours, as if we were twins. And Lavinia was slightly taller than me, so she looked like the older one. And But we were blonde and dark, and we were kind of, we saw ourselves as uh, Snow White and Rose Red, which I know isn't uh, PC anymore. Um, but it was... Um, that story always stuck with us as these two sisters who have uh, very different personalities because we have very different personalities. Um, but I guess in in a way we're very similar in that we're both very creative and, you know, um, but Lavinia's like, where I wore black all through my teens, Lavinia's total pastels and meets everyone with a smile and I was really grumpy and she was just, she's like Christmas every day. She walks in and she's just, she's a gift as she walks into the room. So... It was, you know, we were very different kids, but there was less than a year between us. So we always, you know, looked the same, looked like twins. And then it was nine years later when Andrew came along and, and we had a baby to look after. Um, and we could be seen pushing that pram around day in, day out. Um, I mean, I was 10 when Andrew was born. So we were, yeah, changing nappies at 10 years old and all that kind of stuff. Like He was the novelty. He was the, you know, the new, the new toy in the house. So We're still mad about him. He's still treated like... You know, the only boy. He's, yeah, he's the most precious thing. So you're in school. What are you thinking you'll be when you'll grow up? Uh, I was going to be an accountant. Uh, <laughs> your definitely. Dream, your dreams of being an accountant. Dad. Well, I was good at maths. I was good at. Uh, I loved accountancy. I loved debtors and creditors. I, um, I remember doing bookkeeping and thinking, this is so logical. This is amazing. This makes sense, and these numbers make sense. And I did my work experience in an accountant's in a chartered accountant's, uh, and then he gave me um, a summer job. So I went in to work with him. It was uh, uh, Raymond Daly and Associates, who his offices were in Glasnevin. Uh, It was right beside the Glasnevin Cemetery. Uh, He would give me like loads of tasks to do and uh, reconciling people's checkbooks. And and I still get a thrill out of reconciliations. I still, when I do a reconciliation here and it all works out and the things that I thought I was spending on a show add up to the things that were spent, I uh, am so excited by it and that seems really weird when what I love is the show itself but it's it's that thing of um, it being correct and the logic of it so when I left school I went to be an au pair for a year then I worked in in account, as doing accounts in various haulage companies courier companies um, loved it and hated it at the same time the haulage company kind of drove me a little bit mad because I had this huge office and I was just so lonely I was in this office on my own doing accounts and the stacks of lever arch files would pile up on the desk while I was, you know, doing all the debtors and creditors. And and it was me and Jerry Ryan. Um, Jerry keep me company all morning until, you know, 12 o'clock when he finished. And then in the afternoon, I'd run into the guy who was running the haulage part of it. And the two of us would, you know, um, have a chat in the afternoon. And then I'd go back and finish the books for the day because it was just, I felt so lonely doing it. And didn't know what to do to get myself out of it. And I bartended at night. Um, I was always a bartender. Um, my dad was in the bar business and I wouldn't work for dad, but I wanted to do the same thing. And I loved bartending. And then I took over the All Sports Cafe in Tampa Bar and I managed that. I went in for a year working as a bartender and then took over as a manager. Um, and I think I was only 23 or 24 when I was managing the pub. Um, and continued my work in... Uh, Basically, I had worked in Houth for a long time. A woman came across the road and said, we're doing a play, a religious play called The Nazarene in the church and we need a stage manager. Will you stage manage it? And I went, look, I don't know what a stage manager does. And she went, oh, just wear a set of headphones and we'll explain everything to you. And uh, that was my first gig was in a, in the local church. Um, 
but I was working with um, Anna Farrell was the director the second time. Uh, Michael Barker Caven was Jesus and Michael now runs the Civic. Um, and they said, look, you're good at this. Why don't you think of doing it as a career? And Anne found a course that had just started in Chicago VC uh, in stage management and production. And I went to do that and did that for two years. Um, but it was, uh, yeah, it was interesting times. Uh, you seem to have more hours in the day. You seem to be able to do more when you're at that age. Um, and I would run from, you know, rehearsal, rehearsing with Rough Magic to a show in the Samuel Beckett or, um, you know, rehearsing with Landmark to, to somewhere else and, and spend a lot of time touring with the Opera Theatre Company, um, meeting really, really good friends, um, people who I've, I'm friends with to this day because when you're on the road with somebody and work that closely with them uh, and sit in the van with them every day, you become, you know, very, very close. You either love or hate somebody. You'll either never see them again or be their best friend for life. It sounds like quite an apprenticeship. Did you did you learn everything you needed to know um, being trained or are you learning on the job? I think you're always learning with with theatre. It's um, when I was working as a stage manager and the relationship is with the director and the actors in the room. Um, that's so important to you and you um, really cherish going in and seeing the little nuances that happen to a play every day and how it changes in the rehearsal room. When I decided to go into production management, um, I had worked with really good production managers and thought, yeah, you know, I, I, I could do that. <laughs> but you have to learn about materials. And one of the first things I had to learn about was RSJs and what, uh, how RSJs join together and what it takes to stand them and how you need to bolt them to each other, to different uh, materials, how it would work on this stage. Um, for a production of Plough in the Stars, we used RSJs again later then for a production of the Scottish play. And uh, it was so much easier for me the second time around because I knew, you know, the tensile weight, what, what it was going to have to take, if it was going to be 10 people up there, what we would have to multiply it by to make it work. And I was working with really good structural engineers at the time, um, learning about trywall and uh, plywoods and um, aluminium and steel and everything that goes into making a set, uh, rigging. Uh, as a production, as a stage manager, you know a little. You hear it in the background, and you're you're taking in, you're absorbing a lot of it. But to actually have to make those decisions and be responsible for those decisions as a production manager is the next stage. If you're um, if you're part of the set build and part of the the risk assessment for that set, you know people are going to be standing on it, they're going to be flying in it, they're going to be um, they're going to be under it, they could be swimming in it, you know. So you um, have to learn all those things and take responsibility for them and, and know them in a very different way. But it was a challenge. It was something completely different to go into production management and have to learn about materials in that way. And your relationships with the designers becoming um, much more important with the costume designer and the um, the amount of work that was going into the costume, understanding why fittings needed to happen, uh, understanding the processes of a scenic artist and making sure that the set got to them in the right order, that those processes could happen. Uh, understanding why somebody in props was saying to you, if I give them this prop, when you're going, oh, just give them a jug. and she, But if I give them that jug, they're going to want that jug and it's completely wrong for the year and the time and they'll get used to it. And can you hold off for two days until I get the right one? Um, listening to those things from people and learning them and understanding why they're telling you that um, became really important. And uh, it's, it was a very different um, field for me, but I was really excited by it. Um, it was uh, such a, 
a minefield in a lot of ways. Like you can get it so wrong. But if you hear everybody around you and particularly here in the Abbey where everyone around you is very good at what they do, it's probably at the top of their game. Um, when you have someone like Kevin McFadden saying this will take eight hours, it's from experience. It's, you know, there's no point in saying, look, you have six. He's telling you it will take eight hours because that's how long it will take. If he thought he could do it in six, he would do it in six. Um, so you have to listen to those around you and you have to uh, understand why they're telling you what they're telling you so that the next time that you schedule it, you know to put in eight hours or you know by looking at a plan how complicated it is for the people who are rigging it. Uh, the same with the stage plan. When you go to a builder, they're expecting you to have the detail. So you need to study that plan to within an inch of its life. And Larry Jones, one of our stage techs, used to laugh at the fact that I would go... Um, no, of course it can stand there. It's 7.7 metres and, and that other one is nine. And he'd go, how do you know it's 7.7 metres? You can't know from looking at it. And I've gone, I've been looking at this plan for four weeks. <laughs> you know, it changed four times and now it's 7.7 metres. I know. Um, so doing the work. I mean, it, if you put the work in prior to going on stage, then you have the answers. So you have this comprehensive knowledge of, I suppose, how, how the stage system works. So you go from production... So that sounds like a steep learning curve yeah, there. Very much so. Is there as much a learning curve like going from that to technical director? And and do you lose something? Uh, yeah, I describe it as being promoted out of the job that you love. Um, the job I loved was in the room. The magic is in the room, in the rehearsal room. That's where the magic is. I mean, the other magic is in front of an audience and an audience seeing it, but they only see it because of the magic that happens in the room. And the work and the hard work and the detail and the relentless repetition that everybody knows their job by the time they hit the stage. And that's what fired me up for so long. That was the thing that I was most excited about, that I would turn up to work and hear Shakespeare one day and... Brian Friel the next and Tom Murphy the next and Marina Carr the next or, or the next show that I was on and that each thing that I did uh, was new and exciting to me. I didn't come from a household where we read every night or you know my parents read to me every evening because my dad would get in late my mum would already be asleep because she was getting up early um, and then she would wake up for an hour or two when dad got in. It wasn't the kind of household where you got you know a, a book to read to go to sleep. So a lot of the things that would be very normal to somebody in theatre. They've listened to it all their life. They've heard it since they were a child. Were new to me, brand new. And I loved it. And the privilege of being in a rehearsal room on the first day of rehearsals uh, is such that you are listening to the most experienced voices in this country read something to you for the first time uh, and give it such amazing uh, life that you can't help but want to see that on the stage and see a, a, the public's reaction to it. So I got promoted out of what I loved in a lot of ways. But the biggest uh, learning curve for me was the last job, so technical director at the Abbey, where you're res line managing a group of people um, and you're responsible for their welfare, for their um, their well-being, for their, uh, for their work you're ultimately responsible when things go wrong. Um, you're, everybody can do a risk assessment for a show, but when it goes wrong, it's where were you at the time? What happened? Why did you not see this before? Um, the fear of that keeps you on your toes, keeps you making sure that you've covered all your bases, that you've got the right people doing the right jobs. Um, I line manage uh, the props department and six other departments, uh, six other HODs, and each of them are brilliant. And 
and line managed team and and trusting them is the main point of what you're doing but the fear of it going wrong or being in charge of people's pastoral care as well as everything else that wasn't something I had to do as an ASM it wasn't something I had to do as a stage manager or as a production manager in a lot of ways because I was ultimately not employing them the company was employing them but as a technical director you are you're all of that as well and um it was important to me to build a team where we respected each other and worked together, worked closely together. Um, and I would have to say that I've worked with some of the nicest people in theatre, uh, some of the best colleagues and friends that I could ever have, have been in this building. Uh, the team, Neve, Kevin, Andy, uh, Cliff... Uh, Des Kenny when he was here, um, Ira Murphy, Stephen, that I work really closely with and all of their teams who, you know, I would see every day and pop into their offices and sit down and have a chat with them, uh, you know, ask them questions. Uh, my style of management, and I didn't even realise this was a style of management until I went to management school, which I did, you know, for the last couple of years, um, is management by walking around. I believe in walking into someone's office and talking to them and sitting down with them and then they open up to you then they tell you the problems that are happening the my door is always open manager and people only come to you when something goes wrong but if you can go to them and say you know well done on that gig last night it was absolutely fantastic or i saw that you caught that mistake before anybody else could see it um you know telling people that you've realized they've done you know really good stuff was important to me and going around and, you know, going up to Donna and standing in the room and have her tell me about costumes so that when I'm walking someone else around, I can talk about it. And then when you're explaining it to, you know, visitors who come from America and you bring them upstairs to show them the costume department, when you can talk about it in real terms and the costume department can overhear you, you know, and know that you understand it, I think was really important. And that's, you only get that if you go into people's offices, if you you know, sit with them while they're working. And when I worked in the hotel business years ago, I believed in doing every job. Uh, so I'd be a receptionist one day and I'd be the late night bar person the next day and I'd help do the breakfast the next day and I'd be a waitress the next. And uh, by doing that, you understand what other people need from you. And in here, I've sold tickets. I've, you know, been up on the fly floor. I've I've tied knots in the grid. I've, um, you know, done rigging. I've you know, clean the seating. I do the run around on the uh, first night to make sure the place is clean, uh, taking away coffee cups, um, hoovering in the bar. I don't mind getting my hands dirty. I don't mind doing every job. And I think that's it's only if we all care about it that it becomes the best that it can be. I didn't realise your house calls were part of that management <laughs> style. I didn't realise that. Um, I wanted to ask you about those. You're talking about the magic in the rehearsal room. I want to ask you about those kind of those pinch me moments, I can't believe this is my job. Oh, mostly first days of rehearsals. That is uh, when I meet, you know, we all, we, it feels like first day at school for everybody, every every actor who comes in here, it feels like, oh, they all know each other and, and I don't know anybody. Um, that was my feeling every time I went into the rehearsal room for a long time. And now I know a few more people and I feel a bit more comfortable and I feel it's my job now to introduce people to each other. And my uh, research for that used to be to sit down with all the actors and sit down with all the creatives and maybe say, oh, you both worked with so-and-so-so-and-so uh, recently, you know, uh, you were on such a thing and let them have a conversation then. So I didn't have to 
be involved in it anymore because I was quite shy and I still am quite shy in those situations. Um, new people, people who don't know me. Uh, I get tongue-tied. I uh, say the wrong thing um, constantly. So I try and do the research before and I sit down with all the actors and I go, oh, you both worked on uh, such a show you know, but with different directors or at different times and give them something to talk about. Or I bring them to the kitchen and go, this is where the kitchen is and this is the drawer with all the tea bags in it and, you know, just to do the the, the icebreakers, really. Uh, so finding icebreakers for me was the hard part. But the pinch me moments are things like things that we thought we couldn't do and when we do them on stage, uh, so exciting. Things like the mud pond in uh, She Stoops to Conquer. The flying Aaron Monaghan in Aaron Apoke. Things that... You know, it wasn't just flying him. We wanted to fly him and for him to curve and for him to move. And, you know, getting the Irish wolves hands on stage uh, out for Selena Cartmel's King Lear and and lifting Own Row up out of the uh, the uh, front of stage on the lifts for the storm scene uh, in that same show. Um, there were so many moments that when you when you see it on paper, you go, oh, no. I mean, the, the plan of the stars tower falling over Um in a model box that's literally a piece of a tower and somebody picks it up with their hand and throws it onto its side. In reality, what that is, is something completely different. And the working out of that is exciting. Um, So when it happens, I do get a, you know, a little, I'm sitting in the auditorium kind of welling up going, I can't believe it's real. It's it's full size now. That idea from the model box. Um, We had a a scene change in uh, the big house where... The first time we did it, it took uh, seven, seven minutes, 35 seconds. And, you know, Fiat was like, get that under two minutes. It has to be under two minutes. And I was on the side of the stage with a stopwatch working out who could run faster and who needed to move quicker and what needed to go in what order for it to happen quicker. Every single uh, rehearsal, every preview to get it down to, we actually got it down to one minute and 37. But it was one of those gorgeous moments that actually when it was done right, it was, you know, balletic. It was gorgeous to see. Everybody knew their job. Every member of the stage crew, I think there was 10 stage crew on that show. They knew their job. They knew they had to cross somebody at a point. And if they weren't crossing them at that point, they were going to run into someone else who was carrying something else. Um, it was a huge, complicated set Um but it was beautiful to see it move and move so well with all the right people. And then some of the stage crew would get really into like acting the scenes because there was a big fire at the end and uh, Jerry Byrne would like do the whole, you know, the heat off the fire kind of acting. And uh, that was exciting. I mean, from our point of view, but it was uh, trying to not slow up the show moving the scenery around was what was important. It wasn't about the timing. It wasn't about going from 7 minutes 35 to one thirty-seven. It was about... The, sh- the audience will sit back from the show if we can't move this along fast enough for it to be in the next scene and start it again and move on. So it was giving the show what it needed. Um, and that that's always important in terms of what we do. We, we want to do it and not be seen doing it, but we want to do it so it services the show in the best way possible. I'm going to wrap up with a few final questions, actually. Um, what do you get from working in theatre? Oh, it's amazing. It's uh joy of watching an actor bring a character to life on stage um, take some beautiful writing uh, and turn it into something that's emotive and that draws you in uh, is so amazing it's I mean my partner's really into film scores and he gets that from a film score I get it from watching actors on stage Um, 
the way the slightest because I've watched it change in the rehearsal room from and the slightest little addition or the slightest little nuance can be the thing that gets you that is so thrilling for me to watch it uh, to be around it and to to feel that passion from them as they navigate their way through a script um, and watching gorgeous actors on stage who uh, just the subtlety the almost you, you can't tell the difference each day but you can see it just slightly changing for the better and you're going they've just captured another nuance another moment it was it, like I'm all for continuity and I'm very much like it has to be like this we, we need to this is the timing this this thing is getting slower but watching you know Claire Barrett on stage ring out a moment on, on stage till till there's nothing left till she's absolutely got you and you can't help but watch her um, or Tom Von Lawler or you know all of these beautiful actors but going back to when I started and it was um, you know the lovely Des Cave on stage and still when you see him you can see the training you can see the the, the time he's put into his art form um, working with designers who don't give up who want something so bad that they you know push and push and push to get something really small that you think is you know not necessary to the show and then when you see it you go of course they were right of course they knew it had to be there that was the thing that the moment that was going to change the scene uh, the passion in this industry and the goodwill and the uh, creative uh, power that's in it is really once you get into it, it they, they they talk about a bug and they talk about, you know, this this feeling that you get from doing the work every day, the wanting to get up in the morning. Uh, that's so important for me for a job. If you're going to be in here and with theatre, you're not going to be in eight hours a day. You could be in 12, 15 hours. When you're touring, you could be 16 hours uh, between taking the set out of a van to putting it back in the van. Um you got to love it and you you got to want to do it. Um, and the reason you want to do it is because of those moments. Um, I've watched so many beautiful moments from the wings. Um, you know, Simone Kirby, uh, Stephen Brennan, these beautiful actors on stage and the and the movements. Um, John Kavanagh singing. Just all of those nice little nuances that they put in these the training that they've had and the and how they read an audience um, and know how to pull everything from that audience it just is gorgeous and I guess I just once I found what I love I didn't want to let go and I've stayed with it now for 24 years um, and it really is that moment when you sit in the seats and you go that's powerful that says something and the plays that have done that for me because they resonated at a particular time in my life like The Hanging Garden when uh the family are talking about whether or not they'll put their father into um, a home or whether they'll care for him at home. When you know that people of your age are all going through that same experience or be for baby when everybody your age is, you know, desperately trying to have children and that uh, need and all those plays that tell those stories and resonate for so many people in the audience in different ways, either a friend, their family themselves are going through those things and you're, you're looking at it going, how could how can a play do this for me? This is I should it should be remote. It should be something that I'm looking at technically or that I'm, you know, watching from the darkness. But you just 
you can feel it. You can feel that energy in the audience, people who understand what's being said in the play. Um, the same thing used to happen for, for me in opera when um, the, they'd sing Una Fertiva Lagrima and I would sit in the wings and cry every single night. I couldn't stop myself. No matter where I was on stage or what I needed to be doing, I would go and sit in the wings and I would just bawl for that particular piece of music. And, you know, there's moments of that in theatre and because of what I do I get to experience it for 40 nights in a row or you know uh, four weeks uh, of it's done it again it's got me again <laughs> you know it's not like when you read a book and go back to it and because you've already read it it's the you know you know what's coming it's that thing of they've, they've managed to get me all over again you know if, if someone was to ask you why you're moving on beyond the environs of this parish what would you tell them? Uh, it's a bit like what I was saying earlier about, you know, the Abbey is fantastic and it had so many resources. And, uh, you know, when someone says, I want snow, I want rain, I want fire, I want fireworks on stage, we've done it. Um, and we can do it and we can continue doing it. For me, it was about a challenge. I've been here for 12 years. I've challenged myself in each of the roles that I've done to try something new. And I'm going to try something new again and something very new for me. Um, so it's... Uh, very exciting for me to be going on to something else. But I had just, even if I didn't have that something else to go to, I had just got to a point where I went, I've done it here now, it's someone else's turn. Um, And someone else might do something better with it. Um, We'll bring a new energy, we'll bring a new um, excitement to it. Um, And, you know, actually Chris Hay is taking over my job and he comes from, you know, the UK. He's toured a lot of shows he's gone to a lot of theatres he will bring a different perspective uh, to the building and it will be amazing Um, and there's a lot of uh, like you know new energy with the new directors and that will all bring its own reward I guess in its own way and for me it was time to find my new challenge and my new challenge is going to be uh, across the river in Smock Alley um, where I'll be director of programming and finance. So I'll go back to my roots, back to my accountancy. and uh, But the challenging part is going to be the programming. Meeting those uh, companies that are putting on work and deciding what will go on to the Smock Alley stage, but being part of seeing that from, you know, the conversation about a show to actually being there. I think you're a fantastic fit for that role, Ash. Thank you. Three more questions. Two more questions, maybe. If there was one story that encapsulated it, why you work in the theatre, what would it be? My mother and father came to everything I did and I had worked in community drama and dad and mum were in it. My dad thought he was the, like, he thought he was the bee's knees. Uh, my mum was actually a beautiful actress. She was gorgeous on stage. Now, in community drama, I'm not saying comparing her to anybody who's on the Abbey stage or anything like that, but she knew that it didn't need to be a big moment. It could be a small moment and mean an awful lot. So watching her, I loved it. But dad was the Pando Dame and he was the fire and he was the character. He was the character actor and he was funny and he was vervacious on stage. He was, a, he, was, he was known throughout the town. Everybody knew him. He put on his makeup before he left the house and he walked down the road with his big moustache and his hair and curlers. And he went to the school and he put the plays on. So that was always great. But he came to see every single thing I've ever done and every show I've ever done. And I would be talking to somebody in the bar afterwards and they would go, are you Ashling?" And I'd go, yeah. And they'd go, he's so proud of you. <laughs> what else would you want? Like, to, to have him sit in the audience and go, my daughter did that. 
And I wasn't on stage. I wasn't anywhere. I wanted to be in the darkness. I wanted to be in the, the, the blackness of the backstage. I was never going to walk out. Even when I have to make an announcement, it kills me. My knees go, I dry mouth, everything. But I know that he's sitting out there going, she did that. And I probably had the smallest part in some of these things. This, like I was the, you know, the person who ran around picking up the props or who sweeping the stage before the show. Uh, but he was just so proud. It was gorgeous. Last question. What has the Abbey meant to you? Oh, so much. It's, uh, it's an incredible space to be making work in. Um, to have the resources to do the work, to have enough people to, to do it safely, to do it properly, to be surrounded by the class of the people in here, the people who are really excellent at what they do on a daily basis um, and make it look easy. You know, Neve Lunny makes it look easy. Emma Murphy makes it look easy. Uh, Kevin McFadden, um, Ben Delaney, who the nicest, mild-mannered, gorgeous sound engineer you'll ever work with. And yet he's so talented and he... he he doesn't ask for too much. He doesn't. He doesn't push. He doesn't. But he's, he's lovely to be around. Um, the creatives that have come in, we call them creatives. But all of the designers, the, um, you know, to work with, and I will again. Most of these people. So I'm not, you know, saying goodbye to any of them. But um, you know, I, I've loved Ferdie Murphy. I've loved Joan O'Cleary. I've loved Paula Mahoney. And I don't want to mention all of the names really because I'll leave all the people out who are also really special to me. Um, but to see. Uh, Sarah Bacon's first show on the Abbey stage Sarah's a friend of mine going back to the upper days she worked with me uh, when we toured OTC and to see her design work make its way to the Abbey when she did Shadow of a Gunman after having done a show in the Peacock I was like again looking around at my mates going I'm so proud and Kevin Tracy who's another friend of mine did two shows on the Abbey stage did Aaron Pogue and the Government Inspector and I was uh, you know going these are these are my you know, hotel buddies from when we toured, uh, you know, operas years ago and they're doing so well for themselves and they and they deserve their place on, on the Abbey stage. But the Abbey stage will always be the national stage. It is the showcase for your talents. And when you eventually get there, uh, it's so special to everybody, even to people who've been in and out of the building for years. Um, to work with Joe Eck on that very first show and once in the country uh, in the Abbey, um, you know, Joe and I had worked together prior to that, but just the scale is different, the resources are different, and it was stunning to to spend time with them um, and to listen to the older actors talk about the history. The um, when we did once in the country, they were telling us stories of when it was done previously and little moments of our peeling an orange with Susan Fitzgerald when she was here and how you know they nearly choked on the orange on on set, but we insisted then on putting an orange into the show just to have it as that moment as a memory of the because those ghosts exist uh, in the Abbey. They're they're the moments that you can take from one show to the next uh, and keep that alive is really important. It's that thing of. Um, you know, you die twice, you die and then you die when no one says your name. And the idea that those little moments, those repetitions that happen on stage keep them alive. Ashing, it has been the best education working alongside you 
all these years. Thank you very much for your time today and all the time, every other day over the last decade or so. Thanks, Ashin.